Section 15 of The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Floyd Wilde. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford. Part 4, Section 1. I have, I am aware, told the story in a very rambling way, so that it may be difficult for anyone to find their path through what may be a sort of maze. I cannot help it. I have stuck to my idea of being in a country cottage with a silent listener, hearing between the gusts of the wind and amidst the noises of the distant sea, the story as it comes. And, when one discusses an affair, a long, sad affair, one goes back, one goes forward. One remembers points that one has forgotten, and one explains them all the more minutely, since one recognizes that one has forgotten to mention them in their proper places, and that one may have given, by omitting them, a false impression. I console myself with thinking that this is a real story, and that, after all, real stories are probably told best in the way a person telling a story would tell them. They will then seem most real. At any rate, I think I have brought my story up to the date of Maisie Maiden's death. I mean that I have explained everything that went before it from the several points of view that were necessary, from Leonora's, from Edward's, and, to some extent, from my own. You have the facts for the trouble of finding them. You have the points of view as far as I could ascertain or put them. Let me imagine myself back, then, at the day of Maisie's death, or rather, at the moment of Florence's dissertation on the protest up in the old castle of the town of M. Let us consider Leonora's point of view with regard to Florence. Edward's, of course, I cannot give you, for Edward naturally never spoke of his affair with my wife. I may, in what follows, be a little hard on Florence, but you must remember that I have been writing away at this story now for six months and reflecting longer and longer upon these affairs, and the longer I think about them, the more certain I become that Florence was a contaminating influence. She depressed and deteriorated poor Edward. She deteriorated hopelessly the miserable Leonora. There is no doubt that she caused Leonora's character to deteriorate. If there was a fine point about Leonora, it was that she was proud and that she was silent. But that pride and that silence broke when she made that extraordinary outburst in the shadowy room that contained the protest, and in the little terrace looking over the river. I don't mean to say that she was doing a wrong thing. She was certainly doing right in trying to warn me that Florence was making eyes at her husband. But, if she did the right thing, she was doing it in the wrong way. Perhaps she should have reflected longer. She should have spoken, if she wanted to speak, only after reflection. Or it would have been better if she had acted, if for instance, she had so chaperoned Florence that private communication between her and Edward became impossible. She should have gone eavesdropping. She should have watched outside bedroom doors. It is odious, but that is the way the job is done. She should have taken Edward away the moment Maisie was dead. No, she acted wrongly. And yet, poor thing, is it for me to condemn her? And what did it matter in the end? If it had not been Florence... It would have been some other. Still, it might have been a better woman than my wife, for Florence was vulgar. Florence was a common flirt who would not, at the last, latch her price. 
and Florence was an unstoppable talker. You could not stop her. Nothing would stop her. Edward and Leonora were at least proud and reserved people. Pride and reserve are not the only things in life. Perhaps they are not even the best things. But if they happen to be your particular virtues, you will go all to pieces if you let them go. And Leonora let them go. She let them go before poor Edward did, even. Consider her position when she burst out over the Luther protest. Consider her agonies. You are to remember that the main passion of her life was to get Edward back. She had never, till that moment, despaired of getting him back. That may seem ignoble, but you have also to remember that her getting him back represented to her not only a victory for herself, it would, as it appeared to her, have been a victory for all wives and a victory for her church. That was how it presented itself to her. These things are a little inscrutable. I don't know why the getting back of Edward should have represented to her a victory for all wives, for society, and for her church. Or, maybe, I have a glimmering of it. She saw life as a perpetual sex baffle between husbands who desire to be unfaithful to their wives and wives who desire to recapture their husbands in the end. That was her sad and modest view of matrimony. Man, for her, was a sort of brute who must have his divagations, his moments of excess, his nights out, his, let us say, writing seasons. She had read few novels, so that the idea of a pure and constant love succeeding the sound of wedding bells had never been very much presented to her. She went numbed and terrified to the mother superior of her childhood's convent, with the tale of Edward's infidelities, with the Spanish dancer, and all that the old nun, who appeared to her to be infinitely wise, mystic, and reverend, had done, had been to shake her head sadly, and to say, Men are like that. By the blessing of God it will all come right in the end. That was what was put before her by her spiritual advisers as her program in life. Or, at any rate, that was how their teachings came through to her. That was the lesson she told me she had learned of them. I don't know exactly what they taught her. The lot of women was patience and patience and again patience, ad majorum dia gloriam, until upon the appointed day, if God saw fit, she should have her reward. If then, in the end, she should have succeeded in getting Edward back, she would have kept her man within the limits that are all that wifehood has to expect. She was even taught that such excesses in men are natural, excusable, as if they had been children. And the great thing was that there should be no scandal before the congregation. So she had clung to the idea of getting Edward back with a fierce passion that was like an agony. She had looked the other way. She had occupied herself solely with one idea. That was the idea of having Edward appear when she did get him back, wealthy, glorious, as it were, on accounts of his lands, and upright. She would show, in fact, that in an unfaithful world one Catholic woman had succeeded in retaining her, the fidelity of her husband, and she thought she had come near her desires. Her plan with regard to Maisie had appeared to be working admirably. Edward had seemed to be cooling off towards the girl. He did not hunger to pass every minute of the time at Nauheim beside the child's recumbent form. He went out to polo matches. He played auction bridge in the evenings. He was cheerful and bright. She was certain that he was not trying to seduce that poor child. She was beginning to think that he had never tried to do so. He seemed, in fact, to be dropping back into what he had been for Maisie in the beginning, a kind, attentive, superior officer in the regiment, paying gallant attentions to a bride. 
They were as open in their little flirtations as the day spring from on high, and Maisie had not appeared to fret when he went off on excursions with us. She had to lie down for so many hours on her bed every afternoon, and she had not appeared to crave for the attentions of Edward at those times. And Edward was beginning to make little advances to Leonora, once or twice in private, for he often did it before people. He had said, How nice you look, or what a pretty dress. She had gone with Florence to Frankfurt, where they dress as well as in Paris, and had got herself a gown or two. She could afford it, and Florence was an excellent adviser as to dress. She seemed to have got hold of the clue to the riddle. Yes, Leonora seemed to have got hold of the clue to the riddle. She imagined herself to have been in the wrong to some extent in the past. She should not have kept Edward on such tight rein with regard to money. She thought she was on the right track in letting him, as she had done only with fear and irresolution, have again the control of his income. He came even a step towards her and acknowledged spontaneously that she had been right in husbanding, for all those years, their resources. He said to her one day, You've done right, old girl. There's nothing I like so much as to have a little to chuck away, and I can do it thanks to you. That was really, she said, the happiest moment of her life, and he, seeming to realize it, had ventured to pat her on the shoulder. He had ostensibly come in to borrow a safety pin of her, and the occasion of her boxing Maisie's ears had, after it was over, riveted in her mind the idea that there was no intrigue between Edward and Mrs. Maiden. She imagined that, from henceforward, all that she had to do was to keep him well supplied with money and his mind amused with pretty girls. She was convinced that he was coming back to her. For that month she no longer repelled his timid advances that never went very far, for he certainly made timid advances. He patted her on the shoulder. He whispered into her ear little jokes about the odd figures that they saw up at the casino. It was not much to make a little joke, but the whispering of it was a precious intimacy. And then, smash, it all went. It went to pieces at the moment when Florence laid her hand upon Edward's wrist. As it lay on the glass sheltering the manuscript of the protest, up in the high tower with the shutters, where the sunlight here and there streamed in, or rather it went when she noticed the look in Edward's eyes as he gazed back into Florence's, she knew that look. She had known, since the first moment of their meeting, since the moment of our all sitting down to dinner together, that Florence was making eyes at Edward. But she had seen so many women make eyes at Edward, hundreds and hundreds of women, in railway trains, in hotels, aboard liners, at street corners, and she had arrived at thinking that Edward took little stock in women that made eyes at him. She had formed what was, at the time, a fairly correct estimate of the methods of, the reasons for, Edward's loves. She was certain that hitherto they had consisted of the short passion for the dulcequita, the real sort of love for Mrs. Basil, and what she deemed the pretty courtship of Maisie Maiden. Besides, she despised Florence so haughtily that she could not imagine Edward's being attracted by her, and she and Maisie were a sort of bulwark round him. She wanted, besides, to keep her eyes on Florence, for Florence knew that she had boxed Maisie's ears and Leonora desperately desired that her union with Edward should appear to be flawless. But all that went. With the answering gaze of Edward's into Florence's blue and uplifted eyes, she knew that it had all gone. She knew that the gaze meant that these two had had long conversations of an intimate kind, about their likes and dislikes, about their natures, about their views of marriage. 
She knew what it meant that she, when we all four walked out together, had always been with me, ten yards ahead of Florence and Edward. She did not imagine that it had gone further than talks about their likes and dislikes, about their natures or about marriage as an institution. But having watched Edward all her life, she knew that that laying on of hands, that answering of gaze with gaze, meant that the thing was unavoidable. Edward was such a serious person. She knew that any attempt on her part to separate those two would be to rivet on Edward an irrevocable passion, that, as I have before told you, it was a trick of Edward's nature to believe that the seducing of a woman gave her an irrevocable hold over him for life, and that touching of hands, she knew, would give that woman an irrevocable claim to be seduced, and she so despised Florence that she would have preferred it to be a parlor-maid. There are very decent parlor-maids. And suddenly there came into her mind the conviction that Maisie Maiden had a real passion for Edward, that this would break her heart, and that she, Leonora, would be responsible for that. She went for the moment mad. She clutched me by the wrist. She dragged me down those stairs and across that whispering ritter cell with the high-painted pillars, the high-painted chimney-piece. I guess she did not go mad enough. She ought to have said, your wife is a harlot who is going to be my husband's mistress. That might have done the trick. But even in her madness, she was afraid to go as far as that. She was afraid that, if she did, Edward and Florence would make a bolt of it, and that, if they did that, she would lose forever all chance of getting him back in the end. She acted very badly to me. Well, she was a tortured soul who put her church before the interests of a Philadelphia Quaker. That is all right. I dare say the Church of Rome is the more important of the two. A week after Maisie Maiden's death, she was aware that Florence had become Edward's mistress. She waited outside Florence's door and met Edward as he came away. She said nothing, and he only grunted. But I guess he had had a bad time. Yes, the mental deterioration that Florence worked in Leonora was extraordinary. It smashed up her whole life and all her chances. It made her, in the first place, hopeless for she could not see how, after that, Edward could return to her, after a vulgar intrigue with a vulgar woman, his affair with Mrs. Basil, which was now all that she had to bring in her heart against him. She could not find it in her to call an intrigue. It was a love affair, a pure enough thing in its way. But this seemed to her to be a horror, a wantonness, all the more detestable to her because she so detested Florence. And Florence talked. That was what was terrible. Because Florence forced Leonora herself to abandon her high reserve, Florence and the situation, it appears that Florence was in two minds whether to confess to me or to Leonora. Confess she had to, and she pitched at last on Leonora, because if it had been me, she would have had to confess a great deal more, or at least I might have guessed a great deal more about her heart and about Jimmy. So she went to Leonora one day, and began hinting and hinting, and she enraged Leonora to such an extent that at last Leonora said, You want to tell me that you are Edward's mistress? You can be. I have no use for him. That was really a calamity for Leonora, because once started, there was no stopping the talking. She tried to stop, but it was not to be done. She found it necessary to send Edward's messages through Florence, for she would not speak to him. She had to give him, for instance, to understand that if I ever came to know of his intrigue, she would ruin him beyond repair. And it complicated matters a good deal that Edward, at about this time, was really a little in love with her. 
He thought that he had treated her so badly, that she was so fine, she was so mournful, that he longed to comfort her, and he thought himself such a black guard that there was nothing he would not have done to make amends, and Florence communicated these items of information to Leonora. I don't in the least blame Leonora for her coarseness to Florence. It must have done Florence a world of good, but I do blame her for giving way to what was in the end a desire for communicativeness. You see that business cut her off from her church. She did not want to confess what she was doing because she was afraid that her spiritual advisers would blame her for deceiving me. I rather imagine that she would have preferred damnation to breaking my heart. That is what it works out at. She need not have troubled. But having no priest to talk to, she had to talk to someone, and as Florence insisted on talking to her, she talked back, in short explosive sentences, like one of the damned, precisely like one of the damned. Well, if a pretty period in hell on this earth can spare her any period of pain in eternity, where there are not any periods, I guess Leonora will escape hellfire. Her conversations with Florence would be like this. Florence would happen in on her, while she was doing her wonderful hair, with a proposition from Edward, who seems about that time to have conceived the naive idea that he might become a polygamist. I dare say it was Florence who put it into his head. Anyhow, I am not responsible for the oddities of the human psychology. But it certainly appears that at about that date, Edward cared more for Leonora than he had ever done before, or at any rate for a long time. And if Leonora had been a person to play cards, and if she had played her cards well, and if she had had no sense of shame and so on, she might then have shared Edward with Florence, until the time came for jerking that poor cuckoo out of the nest, while Florence would come to Leonora with some such proposition. I do not mean to say that she had put it badly like that. She stood out that she was not Edward's mistress until Leonora said that she had seen Edward coming out of her room at an advanced hour of the night. That checked Florence a bit, but she fell back upon her heart, and stuck out that she had merely been conversing with Edward in order to bring him to a better frame of mind. Florence had, of course, to stick to that story, for even Florence would not have had the face to implore Leonora to grant her favors to Edward if she had admitted that she was Edward's mistress. That could not be done. At the same time Florence had such a pressing desire to talk about something, there would have been nothing else to talk about but a rapprochement between the estranged pair. So Florence would go on babbling and Leonora would go on brushing her hair, and then Leonora would say suddenly something like, I should think myself defiled if Edward touched me now, that he has touched you. That would discourage Florence a bit, but after a week or so, on another morning, she would have another try. And even in other things, Leonora deteriorated. She had promised Edward to leave the spending of his own income in his own hands, and she had fully meant to do that. I dare say she would have done it too, though no doubt she would have spied upon his banking account in secret. She was not a Roman Catholic for nothing. But she took so serious a view of Edward's unfaithfulness to the memory of poor little Maisie that she could not trust him any more at all. So when she got back to Branshaw, she started, after less than a month, to worry him about the minutest items of his expenditure. She allowed him to draw his own checks, but there was hardly a check that she did not scrutinize, except for a private account of about five hundred a year, which, tacitly, she allowed him to keep for expenditure on his mistress or mistresses. He had to have his jaunts to Paris. He had to send expensive cables in cipher to Florence about twice a week. But she worried him about his expenditure on wines, on fruit trees, on harness, on gates, on the account 
at his blacksmith's for work done to a new patent army stirrup that he was trying to invent she could not see why he should bother to invent the new army stirrup and she was really enraged when after the invention was mature he made a present to the war office of the designs and the patent rights it was a remarkably good stirrup i have told you i think that edward spent a great deal of time and about two hundred pounds for law fees on getting a poor girl the daughter of one of his gardeners acquitted of a charge of murdering her baby that was positively the last act of edward's life it came at a time when nancy rufford was on her way to india when the most horrible gloom was over the household when edward himself was in an agony and behaving as prettily as he knew how yet even then leonora made him a terrible scene about this expenditure of time and trouble she sort of had the vague idea that what had passed with the girl and the rest of it ought to have taught edward a lesson the lesson of economy she threatened to take his banking account away from him again i guess that made him cut his throat he might have stuck it out otherwise but the thought that he had lost nancy in that in addition there was nothing left for him but a dreary dreary succession of days in which he could be of no public service well it finished him it was during those years that leonora tried to get up a love affair of her own with a fellow called bayham a decent sort of fellow a really nice man but the affair was no sort of success i have told you about it already end of part four section one